Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Hello, I'm looking oh, for... Oh, greetings, Dumpling. Welcome to the Church of Kyontology. I mean, this particular branch of our church. I wouldn't want you to think the whole church consists of a rented space in a Regis business center where you get the first two months free if you call our 1-800 number today. Did you just call me Dumpling? Oh, yes. We call all our new members Dumpling. Until you clear all the tiny scallions from your brain and achieve total wolf awareness, you're just flour wrapped around meat. A dumpling. Actually, I was just looking for... Ow! You hit me! It was an emergency. There were pickle snakes hovering near your ear. I had to dislodge them. For your sake. Pickle snakes? They're these tiny invisible reptiles made of antimatter. And if they get inside your brain, you'll never experience joy. We all have a few inside us, except the extraordinary Wolfmaster. Only he has achieved true freedom from pickle snakes. Who is he? Oh, Billy Squire. The rock guy? Well, that was one of his manifestations, but now he's balabala, our word for a piece of light. Uh, light doesn't come in pieces. <laughs> I'm sure it looks that way to you. Look, I'm just trying to find the FedEx place in this building. Yeah, we all are. We're all trying to find the place in this building of life where our package can be shipped to its proper destination. So where is it? Suite 371, four doors down from here. Thank you. Dang, I was supposed to ask him for $10,000. I am so bad at this. Today on The Scramble, we analyze the HBO documentary about Scientology, the struggles of Indiana, and the backlash against a Lena Dunham New Yorker piece. And now his brain is a screaming tower of pickle snakes, Colin McEnroe. Yeah, that's true, but until I got into chirontology, I didn't really know what the problem is. And now <clears throat> I'm really making a lot of progress, uh, although it's very expensive. All right, so we're going to be talking today about um, Alex Gibney's new documentary uh, about the Church of Scientology, which aired last night on HBO. A little bit later in the show, we'll talk about the Religious Freedom Pro uh, Restoration Act in Indiana. Uh, you may be surprised to hear that there is a Re Religious Freedom Restoration Act on the books in Connecticut. In fact, we have, I think, the oldest state Religious Freedom Restoration Act in America, passed in 1993. Um, but we'll also talk to uh, some uh, to a tourism guy in Indianapolis about the problems they're having now. A lot of people feel, as a matter of principle, that they should not go there. Um, and then uh, towards the end of the show, uh, it, uh, we're going to talk about a somewhat controversial, I mean, not hugely controversial, but somewhat controversial humor piece by Lena Dunham in The New Yorker, which is kind of an occasion to discussion also about humor, about humor which relies heavily on certain kinds of Jewish tropes. So that's clearly the piece that's going to go off the rails, but uh, but we'll be fine. And it turns out that our first guest could have also been the guest on our third segment because he's also written something about that. He's also hosting the show tomorrow. I feel like I'm becoming increasingly irrelevant compared to Mark Oppenheimer, <laughs> but that was inevitable. Uh, Mark Oppenheimer yeah. writes the uh, biweekly beliefs column for the New York Times. He has the best managed career in journalism. I've said that many times, and he will be tomorrow on as a guest host for a show about morning zoo radio. 
So uh, we're excited about all of that. But, Mark, you've also written an awful lot about Scientology over the years. Way too much. Way too much about Scientology. Um, And uh, so it's amazing that you haven't been put in the hole, which we learned about last night. (laughs) How do you you know I'm not in it right now? That's right. You could be in the hole. (laughs) Um, And so um, let's just start with the the documentary from last night, uh, uh, which is uh, made by the filmmaker Alex Gibney. It's airing on HBO. First of all, you 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 know obviously you've written about this a lot. You've reported about it a lot. Was there anything new for you? I mean, was this just sort of stuff you already knew? Uh, there was there was some new there were new anecdotes. There was new footage. Uh, there was, I mean, I hadn't seen that much David Miscavige before I'd seen obviously the Tom Cruise, you know, clips from Tom Cruise that, that had been leaked of, of him talking in an internal promotional, uh, video that they had done, but I had never seen, you know, I'd always read about David Miscavige as a, <laughs> a shorter version of Tom Cruise, who's already pretty short. And I say that as someone who's short. So, you know, <laughs> these are my people and I'm, you know, we'll jump ahead to the Lena Dunham piece. Right, you know, exactly. the Jews can make these Jewish jokes. Uh, uh, Lena Dunham being a Jew and short. Uh, I am short and Tom Cruise apparently is a little shorter than me. And David Miscavige looks a good bit shorter than Tom Cruise. But they have the same megawatt smile and the same uh, newscaster anchorman hair. And, and I had never seen so much David Miscavige. And he is this the shadowy uh, mastermind who, who really had c- committed prosecuted a coup to come out as head of the Church of Scientology after L. Ron Hubbard left his earthly body. So that that was new for me. That was actually a big it was it was it was like seeing the pope talk at length for the first time. Right. So I love the notion of you and uh, Tom Cruise and David Miscavige as kind of Russian nesting dolls. Yeah. Uh, but yep. um, let's for people who want to. So David Miscavige is the guy who basically took over the church when uh, L. Ron Hubbard died, maybe even a little bit before L. Ron Hubbard died. Let's hear just a little clip from uh, from last night's documentary. We're out to make every life extraordinary. And if by chance it ever seems laborious or a sacrifice, then you are looking at the off-ramps instead of the highway. You are missing the signpost up ahead, the one that reads, Next Stop, Infinity. Um, one of many of these, Whoa. yeah, yeah. Well, you know, it's very hard. I, I've you know, totally missed that signpost up ahead. Right. One of the challenges with Scientology is, I mean, if you've ever seen the movie Bowfinger, which has a labor, like a long parody of Scientology, it's it's hard to do something that isn't just like Scientology. But anyway, um, the um, one of the things that I find very surprising about some of these Miscavige scenes are, are that many of them take place on on stage at these rallies where. The, the stage sets, I, I don't even know how to describe them, but it really looks like Albert Speer designed the sets, right? There's this kind of <laughs> sense of scale and, and these huge torches that are even given for uh, factoring for how tiny David Miscavige may or may it not be. It looks like the scene where Liev Schreiber accepts hmm. the presidency in the remake of The Manchurian Candidate, <laughs> which is, you know, it's like spot. It's like the 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 national convention on on steroids. It's so super. Ter- it's what our conventions will look like in the year 2048. And uh, actually, you get some credit for, I mean, having written a very uh, level headed piece for Slate in which you you talked about other there are these certain criticisms of Scientology many of which were re-aired last night on HBO, uh, but, and you, you're less concerned about some of them, but one of the things you were concerned about was how bad their aesthetic uh, was, that right. like, everything mean, they make is ugly. The thing you have to understand, so all religions have aesthetics, and by the way, I'm going to bracket the question of whether or not your religion or my religion or any given religion is true. Let's assume for a moment that, that, that yours or mine is. We can have the same discussion, even positing that the religion might be divinely inspired, okay? So let's set that aside and say, even if you believe that about your given religion— 
you then have to acknowledge that whatever religion it is, it has a particular aesthetic, which is is human-made, man-made, woman-made over 50 years in the case of Scientology, over 3,000 years in the case of Judaism, and, you know, everything in, in, but who's in between. Counting? Right, but who's counting, right? <laughs> right. So, you know, the, it's interesting to me how different religions come up with uh, with different um, aesthetics. I mean, if you've been inside a Mormon temple, they have another aesthetic that that I've actually written. I wrote about in the Hartford Current uh, years ago. And um, the Scientology aesthetic is exactly what you'd expect of a religion that was created by a science fiction writer. I mean, it's 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 flat. Sc- I go inside a Scientology. Go inside the Scientology Center in Times Square, and it's flat screen TVs everywhere, and and bright lights, and lots of futuristic looking typefaces on all the posters, and that's their thing. So uh, one reason I think I like I like reporting on Scientology. I have absolutely no fear that I'll ever be sucked in because I don't even like science fiction. <laughs> and if you're not a sci-fi fan, it's pro- you're, you're, you're impervious. You're Teflon coated. Well, one of the – I mean I think it's fair to say that, that uh, Going Clear, the, the movie uh, that Howard Skibney has right. done, is unrelentingly negative about Scientology. <laughs> I mean the, the only person who ever says anything good is John Travolta. It's not even clear to me in those little pieces of John Tra- Travolta footage that he's – talking for the documentary or that he knows he's in a documentary. I, I didn't really know tell. where that was from either. I yeah, I couldn't tell I, whether it looked a little found somehow. Yeah, that was but, new to me, um, the Travolta but, stuff. But he's like the only person who ever says anything nice. And, and, and then really the movie is just essentially full of people who are former Scientologists, often very, very high-ranking, uh, as high-ranking as you, you can get and not be named Hubbard or Miscavige, who have flipped, who are apostates, uh, who have terrible things to say about Scientology. And, you know, one thing that you did in, the, in that study piece and that you've done in general is, is sort of try to at least, you know, weight some of this stuff a little bit. And, and I wondered whether you thought, was there any room for Alex Gibney to introduce anything, like even a scholar of religion saying, saying what you've said, which is that, you know, religions tend to look weirder the younger they are or something right. like that. I mean, if what you're saying is Alex Gibney should have made me a major talking head in that documentary. Absolutely. Un- unquestionably, right? I should, I should have more time on HBO. But no, I mean, I think... Um, <clears throat> Look, he had two hours in which to do what he did, and I actually was – at the end of it, I was surprised at how much I expected to see. There's a, there are a lot more stories that he didn't get to, and if you want to get to those, you don't have to read Lawrence Wright's whole book on which this documentary is based. Just go read the New Yorker article that was turned into a book. Um, the, the article came out maybe four years ago, and the book came out a year or two ago called Going Clear. And <clears throat> there, you know, some of the most horrible stories of you know people who died under so-called care of Scientology because they weren't allowed to seek medical help – um, are, weren't even in this movie. So I'm okay with him saying, look, I have two hours to do my thing, and I'm going to focus on what I think, this is Gibney talking, the most important message is, which is the dangers posed by Scientology. What I've always wanted is not for people to stop writing these negative attacks on Scientology, most of which I think are true. Okay, But what I've always wanted is something we don't have, which is a book or a documentary or an article interviewing non-celebrity, non-disaffected, non-angry, non-apostate, everyday Scientologists because there are some. There aren't a lot. I mean Scientology is not that big a religion. It's not as big as they want you to think it is. My guess is there are 100 in Connecticut, uh, maybe not more. But I'd like to hear their voices of why they – you know, when not working as an actuary or a a baker or a cab driver are putting money into Scientology. And I think that there's an important truth in there, too, which is that we have a little bit of a tendency, particularly the younger the religion is, to either assume that absolutely everybody in it is completely drenched in the doctrine of the religion and and imbued with it and, and, and in no way a questioning of it or 
um, observing it casually so that, you know, we, we just assume that every Mormon thinks that he's going to get his own planet or that Indians are, or Jews or however that thing works. Right. Um, and um, whereas we kind of understand that not all Catholics really believe in transubstantiation. Right. We have a, we have a sense of the different ways that you can belong to Catholicism or Judaism or or. Protestantism. Mm -hmm. But when we see a religion that seems younger, uh, and youth is key there, right? Young religions always seem weird. If you start a new religion, it will be described as a cult and as weird and as bizarre, right? Because it's new. Um, but when we see a young religion or a very, very tiny religion, we assume the people who believe that are completely all in. We don't think maybe they're sort of like kind of casual Amish. Right. Um, <laughs> now, that's a harder thing to be casual about, true. I will grant you. But, you know, every within every community, I mean, I've reported in ultra, ultra Orthodox Jewish communities where all of them would look ultra to us on the outside. But you get within it and there's a very strong sense of the diversity of views and who kind of has some ironic cynicism about it, who's totally earnest about it, who's 100 percent fundamentalist about it. So one of the figures in the documentary last night going clear is Paul Haggis. He's a famous uh, director screenwriter, probably best known for the movie Crash. Um, and, and so there's this point where they start talking about the cosmology, which, to which we have alluded. And so basically there's this notion that this kind of evil overlord from outer space and from a different planet went up dropping, I don't know, 13 trillion damaged souls onto Earth as kind of an Australia, you know, like a prison planet or something. And he put them in volcanoes and he dropped an atomic bomb about, uh, on top of them. Makes perfect sense to me, but not to everybody else. So and this is Paul Haggis talking about the moment at which he digested all of that. And we have these lost souls all over us, and we have to get rid of them. And I'm going, what? <laughs> are you talking about? <laughs> I'm down for the self-help stuff. I'm down for, okay, I can be clear. I can, you know, I can get rid of those, the negative emotions. But what the is this? And so he's talking about the notion that these souls uh, who, that were dropped into the volcano now are kind of all over the place and they're getting on us and in us and, and that causes all of our, our problems. Although, Mark, I would note that he does not leave the Church of Scientology at this point. <laughs> right. I mean, the Church of Scientology, you know, people stay in religions for a lot of different reasons, right? There are people, I think it's a minority, but there are people who stay in a given religion because they simply believe that the, all the points or most of the points of its theology are just literally true, right? They, they're not at liberty to leave because they've discovered truth and the truth is in the texts of the religion and so they're going to stay, right? I think that's a pretty small minority. Most people stay for a mix of some sense that the religion has, holds some truths, which may be kind of metaphorical rather than literal, the social aspect, which is that they these become their friends it, and it becomes what they do with their time, right? It's how they it's, – it's, it's whom they hang out with. Um, and then a sense for a lot of people that their lives are simply better when they have this ritual or this routine. You know, you, you hear people say, look, I don't know if, if the mass is actually, you know, the body and blood of Christ. I don't – but when I go to mass every week, I feel better and I feel I'm kind of centered for the week. I feel I'm – you know, my head is screwed on straight on Monday if I go to mass on Sunday. So that's a very different thing from subscribing literally to all these beliefs. So, you know, I think Paul Haggis, he, he realized that the upper – the higher level truths of the – of Scientology that you get revealed to you at the operating Thetan level three or whatever, uh, might be a little dubious. Um, <laughs> but his whole world was Scientology. His wife was a Scientologist. His friends were Scientologists. And, and also there's the, the matter of sunk cost. I mean, once you put in 20 years, it's very hard to say, well, I guess that was all a waste. So you say, well, you know, maybe that particular story was kind of metaphorical. Yeah, he even makes the point that at the moment in which you are at some level going through some very specific course, 
um, and something strikes you as, as odd or, or difficult to wrap your mind around, you've already paid for the next one anyway. So you're probably going to. Right. Um, I mean, it is the Amway of, uh, of, of religion. You know, be very, people say, how can you be on guard? Be very skeptical of anything where they say the really good stuff comes after you've put in another year and another $50,000. So, you know, you fit, when I finish watching something like this, uh, like this documentary, I mean, one of the questions is, well, so now what? Um, and and um, Alex Gibney would be within his rights to say, well, it's, that's not my business. Now right. what? You decide now what? But it seems to me that there are kind of two diff- different kinds of transgressive religious groups or movements. Now, one of them is the kind that we will be talking about in the second segment a little bit uh, to the extent that, um, and you're not, it's the only segment that you know uh, accountability is ascribed to right. you, Mark Oppenheimer. None. But, um, but the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which is, which is originally, these kinds of laws were originally enacted to help out those those or to address sometimes the situations of those these groups like Native Americans who use peyote uh, in their in their um, worship s- uh, services or other kinds of groups often from other parts uh, of the Americas where they do use scheduled substances you know in certain kinds of ceremonies so should they have to bear the full burden of that law so you've got that group you know where there's a real question about their liturgy and, and whether or not it breaks laws and whether the the law should be brought to bear with full brunt on those groups and then you've got What's really being alleged of the Church of Scientology here, which is they're really, at minimum, not good citizens, and at maximum, they're really hurting people in ways that are just illegal, that that no amount uh, of squeezing of the First Amendment is going to produce the lemon juice it takes, you know, (laughs) to to get them off the hook. And and, and so, I mean, Gibney seems to be erring on that side, right, that these people, when you look at the stuff they do, the forced, what seems to be kind of forced incarcerations of people who subsequently deny that they're being— Well, and the separation of people from their families. Families is, right. is a big thing. You know, when we talk about so so religion scholars don't like the word cult because it's just kind of a it's a slur that doesn't tell you very much. Okay, and far far better to describe what we mean when we say that something's when we when we're about to reach for that word, it's much better to just reach for some stories and some facts and talk about what we w- what we would mean by that word. And I think when, often when people use that word, one of the most important things they're talking about is um, separating people from their families, is is isolating them. And this is where I've come down in different places on Scientology. I'm actually getting more and more skeptical as I get older. And I, I used to def- I don't think I defend it now quite as much as I did in that Slate piece five or six years ago, but. But one of the important points to make is that unlike, you know, Jim Jones and the People's Temple or some other – or Heaven's Gate, right, or some mm-hmm. other very famous cults where those people were off the grid. They had cut off contact from – with their family members. Um, they were – they lived within a total universe of the religion, right? There are Scientologists who are still friends with non-Scientologists. I mean I've had a friend who was a Scientologist. He has since left by the way. But mm-hmm. but there are Scientologists who, who like party with other people and, and are totally in touch with their family members and their friends and whatnot. So it's a little bit – you know, the, the question of like how, how evil is it? Um, to me, I think uh, what I'm, what's making me more and more critical of Scientology, the more I hear and the more I learn, is how ruthless they become when you do cross them. And so if you stay at a very low level, if you're Johnny Scientologist from uh, uh, Durham, Connecticut, I don't know why I picked Durham, but let's say from Durham. and uh, Rife with Scientologists. Rife with Scientologists, right. And, you know, you, you audit some classes and you – or you, you take some classes, you do some auditing, these other Scientology things, you pay a thousand bucks a year, whatever. Uh, 
it, it may never, there may never be any problem with your participation. I mean, it may just be a kind of little, nice little add-on to your life, and it, there may never be any cost. It seems to be, though, that when people get very, very involved, the demands on them are greater, and the consequences that the church imposes if they ever separate from the church get greater and greater. And you don't want a religion where the, if you get really committed, that's when they become horrible to you. So I, I think it's a, I think they're bad news. Um, yeah, I, I certainly wound up. I mean, I, I've written a little bit about them and 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 known people like the people that you're describing who are sort of a little bit more um, casual, you know, Scientologists. Um, I guess one of the things that I, I would bring up, though, because this is the kind of thing that you look at too, is you could also make the argument that the younger that the religion is, and therefore the more imperiled it feels. Um, the more likely they are to to have a pretty strong backlash against apostates, against departers, right? That that's that's you know they they probably see this as um, self preservation. That you know for fifty years we've been treated, we've been the underdog, we've right? been treated and the way the Mormons were treated for the f- first exactly. fifty years. Yeah. So look, all religions go through this process if they stick around. And I don't, I actually don't think you'll hear much about Scientology fifty years from now. I think it'll be like Christian Science, which is a big. Landlord, they own a lot of property, but it's hard to find a Christian scientist. And I think Scientology will have the property, but very, very few people. Um, but that said, as they go through, religions go through this process. When they're young, they make these claims that no one's ever heard before, so they seem totally bizarre. The people who join them seem like cultists. Uh, they're extremely defensive. Uh, they expel heretics. They guard their borders tightly. And then after a number of years, let's call it 100 or 150, but sometimes it's it's much more geological time, then they get big enough and confident enough that they begin to allow diversity within their own ranks. So Mormonism, I say, has crossed that boundary really just in the last 10 or 15 years, right, where you now have kind of cultural Mormons. You have what I'd call reform Mormons. Now, the top brass in in Utah doesn't like that, but there are actually lots of Mormons beginning to identify as internal critics or people who don't take every word as gospel. Well, Scientology is just not there yet, and they might not be during our lifetimes. I thought one of the things that was, was striking to me was, was that, okay, so last night we met a bunch of these apostates, and, and they, for the mo- many of them were people who had been very high-ranking uh, officials of the church, and the people who, for whatever reason, had perpetrated many of the offenses, the offenses that the movie was now deploring, right? These are some of the people who really were the hammers of the church, who went after right. other people, and so they did something wrong. They got kicked out of the church, or they got squeezed out of the church, or they, they couldn't take it anymore, or they got tired of telling the kinds of lies that they're now deploring in the documentary. And looking at all of them, I sort of thought, well, if I were the publicist for Scientology, I'd be saying, well, of course they're saying all this bad stuff. They, they got kicked out or they, you know, they, they just, uh, of course they're saying. To me, the most damning testimony came from this rather lovely, ethereal-looking woman who was not a, an official of the church at all, uh, but she had attained the highest setting you can get to, right. whatever that is. Right. She'd risen through the ranks. She, she got was as, OT8. Yeah, OT8. So she's gotten as clear as you're ever going to get and all, all that kind of stuff. And then she just sort of didn't like the way the church was treating her son and, and, and this whole series of orders that come out from the church that fam- where family members have to disconnect from one another. They literally use that word. And she just couldn't take it anymore. And really just having climbed to the top of Everest, she jumped off. Right. And, and, and I, I thought that was... That and her was daughter ba- and her daughter cut off all contact with her forever. Yeah, it was the most. It was the saddest thing. And you know, one of the one of the apostates makes an interesting point, and this is in Lawrence Wright's uh, old article back in the New Yorker from a few years ago, where he says, you know, as soon as we leave, they 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 attack us. They put up websites saying, you know, we were we were always corrupt. We were always immoral. We weren't to be trusted. We were liars and thieves and adulterers, and that's why ultimately they kicked us out, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 this guy, I forget if it was Marty Rathbun or one of the other apostates, said so. So 
but he said, but but we were like OT sevens. We were the people who were supposed to be like whom Scientology had turned into super people. So what does it say about their religion that there are people who are that far up the bridge in Scientology speak who are supposed to be morally pure and able to use their thoughts to affect the world and to be essentially be superhumans? And then all of a sudden the church says, whoops, I guess they were, you know, low down, adulterating, lying, drug addicted scoundrels. I mean, it it, it undermines the, inher- the the internal logic of their religion, which is that the people who work their way way up the bridge are, are super superheroes. So, you know, it's it's like, what leg do they have to stand on at that point? Right. And it seemed to me in terms of the future survival of the church, the, the thing that you're talking about, that the destruction of that woman's loyalty. I mean, you know, it's one thing when somebody who's number two or number three or number four in the organization gets mad at number one right. and flips. And I mean, we've sort of seen that kind of thing before. But this is somebody else. This is kind of one of your Michael Jordans, you know, right. who's just playing at an, an exalted level. And if you just if you can destroy that person's relationship to you, that's that doesn't augur well for your survival. It does not no, it doesn't it doesn't augur well. And I think look, the internet's been very bad for Scientology because essentially everything has leaked. And so if you don't see it on South Park or on HBO, you can just see it by Googling. <laughs> and um you know, and I'll tell you something as a as a journalist, the place where my my tenuous sort of gossamer thread of 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 faith that maybe they should deserve the benefit of the doubt gets severed is that they won't grant you interviews. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, you know, our archbishops will talk to the press. Uh, you know, rabbi, chief rabbis of cities will talk to the press. They'll let you into their archives. They'll let you attend all their services. Scientology, you you can't talk to David Miscavige or I mean, what's what's all the secrecy for? Um, we're going to have to end it there, but Mark Oppenheimer, people who are just getting warmed up to Mark Oppenheimer, <laughs> there's great news. Tomorrow. He'll be guest hosting the show tomorrow with, what, Gary Craig and all kinds of morning zoo people, right? No, Gary said no. Oh, Gary said Gary no. Gary said but other morning zoo, t- we're going to talk about the morning zoo. David Miscavige will be on tomorrow as part of the he morning zoo He would be a program. great straight man on, like, a morning <laughs> zoo type show. <laughs> He'd, like, make little funny sound effects and well, stuff. It's always good to have a second act planned. So, David, if you're listening... <laughs> Think that over. All right. Thanks. We'll be back Thanks. with Mark tomorrow. Uh, we'll be back with the Religious Freedom Restoration Act after this. Personality tests. E-meters narking on. Times Square recruitment from dusk to dawn. All this from the guy who wrote Battlefield Earth. Salvation for a feel. Let's see what your soul's worth. There's a party at All right. Uh, some of the other news from the weekend. It didn't start on the weekend, but it uh, obviously the um, signing of the law uh, in Indiana, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, has uh, caused uh, all kinds of hue and cry. Um, you know, a little bit later in this segment, you'll hear from an Indiana tourism official uh, about their the dismay with which they have greeted, regarded this law, uh, being aware of the fact that it's sacrificing not only a very lucrative um, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender um, tourism segment, but a lot of other people who simply sympathize uh, with those groups as well, that a lot of people don't want to travel there uh, or aren't going to travel there. Um, but we wanted to, first of all, talk a little bit about the law itself. Uh, and it turned out that the more that we read about it, the more I realized anyway, I had, I didn't really understand it. I under, didn't understand its background at all. And I certainly didn't understand that Connecticut has a very similar law on the books, maybe the oldest uh, such state law in the country. So to help us out with that, we've got Marcy Hamilton. She is the Paul R. Verculi Chair in Public Law at Yeshiva University. She runs a, a website uh, called R, uh, rfraperils.com in which uh, she looks at all of these state laws and the, and the uh, federal law which gave birth to them. Uh, and she's going to help us understand uh, a little bit more about them now. First of all, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. 
Um, so um, let's just do a little quick history here. The way I understand it, this all does kind of begin with a uh, with a federal law, uh, and uh, and that's from 1993. Do I have that right? That's right. That was the first uh, Religious Freedom Restoration Act, and it was started at the federal level. And and it, the goal of it, the way I understand it anyway, is different from what's being talked about now. I mean, it may have been a misguided goal, but this it really was more, I think, about these the kinds of groups that maybe use a, 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 a drug of some kind. I was trying to say scheduled substance, but I can't say scheduled substance uh, in, in their liturgies or something like that. And, um, and we're seeking that kind of protection. Is that how this law began? Well, it's interesting, because when you do the deep digging, it turns out that the federal RIFRA actually started with the goal of conservative Christians to be able to discriminate against the fair housing laws. Ah. Uh, But that wasn't public for a number of years, and many people thought it was just a benign law that's good for everyone. Uh, And it's a lot of legalese and mumbo-jumbo, and on the surface, it sounds like a great law. But in fact, it has been motivated by for the purpose of discrimination from the beginning, but Indiana's law is much more extreme than the federal law. Um, uh, to me, one of the things that I don't hear being discussed, and, and I do think it's the shift that's embedded somewhere in this law, uh, and help me understand if I'm right or wrong about this, but uh, in other words, under the First Amendment, I could start a religion which could be pretty bigoted uh, as long as I stayed within the confines of my church, within my religion. In other words, I, I could have a white, Christian white supremacist religion that, that taught uh, that, that, that black people or all people of color were inferior to white people or whatever, and that they, they shouldn't sit next to us in church or whatever. And there would be very little that could be done about me. But I couldn't open a lunch counter and enact those principles. I couldn't run uh, some kind of commercial business uh, along the lines of what my religious beliefs are. I mean, that's basically the way it works most of the time, absent some kind of law like this, right? Right. I mean, believers in the United States have the right to believe anything they want. They have the right to engage in worship. What they can't do is violate the laws that apply to everybody else. And so the anti-discrimination laws, the religious groups are subject to them, uh, and they can't have a lunch counter or a hotel or a business that refuses you based on your identity. And so when they say, well, yes, um, I'm, I'm running a hotel, but I'm part of this group, I'm part of this movement, and we really think that there's something wrong with handicapped people, and that's the mark of the beast if they have physical disabilities, and so I really can't have them in my hotel. It's my religion. What's the answer? Well, the answer under the First Amendment is you don't have a right to trump that law just because of your beliefs. Under the RIFRA in Connecticut, uh, it's very likely that the believer loses. But under the extreme RIFRA in Indiana, the believer is likely to win and be able to keep out anybody from their business that is in conflict with their own personal beliefs. Now, part of the difference between Indiana and, and Connecticut would be the way the law is written. But another part is that we have anti-discrimination uh, laws in Connecticut that are diff- also different. In other words, that, and that might trump RIFRA in, in Connecticut. I mean, you, if you can't um, discriminate against people based on their sexual orientation, then the existence of RIFRA doesn't help you very much anyway. Right. It, it, Connecticut already has a stronger framework for protecting uh, sexual orientation. Of course, Indiana does not. And uh, so it really does open the door for a return of the Jim Crow laws right from the Deep South. So, um, you know, we've all now been treated to the site of Governor Pence from Indiana saying, well, no, it's, it's really it really is about 
making tolerance a two-way street. I think that's the phrase that he's using. That, that mm-hmm. okay, so we want to extend uh, tolerance and protection to all kinds of, um, uh, of, of minorities, including people with strong religious beliefs and practices. So, uh, so what's your counter to that? I mean, if he says that, if he says, look, I'm, yes, I'm concerned about, about uh, discrimination against uh, LGBT people, but I'm also concerned against discriminating, forcing a florist to do something that's religiously repellent to him. Well, you know, the United States has already crossed that bridge. We had religiously motivated racial discrimination in the South for a very, very long time. And we determined that you can't keep people out of public spaces like hotels, restaurants, and uh, shops just because of their identity. That argument goes nowhere. Basically what they're arguing, if you look carefully at what they're saying on their website, uh, they're really arguing that they should have a right to discriminate uh, in their sphere. And essentially they want a universe where each of us would be our own specific isolated universe where the only people we would deal with would agree with us. And that is just, in my view, un-American. Um, are there some other interesting touch points here where this gets kind of interesting? I mean, in Connecticut, for example, a few years ago, we did have a debate about about a law that mandated Plan B contraception for uh, for rape victims, that all hospitals uh, had to have it, make it available uh, to rape victims coming in. Catholic hospitals pushed back against that and said, we consider Plan B to be a, an abortifacient. You're making us do something that's um, counter to our religion. I assume this is another battleground where this type of debate whether there's a, a RIFRA, whether there's this kind of law or not, this type of debate plays out. Well, that's right. We have thousands across the United States of these kinds of specific exemptions for specific practices. Uh, and, in fact, the, the uh, Native American group that lost in the decision that spurred RIFRA ended up getting exemptions for the use of peyote across the country. So those kinds of exemptions are very common. But what's okay about those, in my view, and under the First Amendment, is that you know what you're giving to the believer. You know that now they're going to have the right to use peyote. You know they're not going to treat a rape victim with a certain drug. That's a very different thing than these referees, which just blanket the laws in opaque legalese, and you honestly don't know from the get-go what kind of havoc they're going to uh, result in for every law in the state. Uh, They're really just bad public policy, and we need to get back to these individual, debated, specifically named exemptions. Um, Marcy Hamilton, oh, we have one more. We have a call coming in. I'm not sure. Oh, here's Sandra from Southbury. Hi, Sandra. You're on the air. Hi. I have two gay children, a son and a daughter out of the three, and I would be uh, hesitant to ask someone to, like, bake their wedding cake if they were not agreeable to it. Uh, (laughs) <laughs> would I sue them if they did something really bad and ruined the wedding? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, well, obviously, I mean, you have the right to not patronize that business for whatever reason, either because you, you know, you object to their attitudes towards your children or because you think they might sabotage the, the cake. But, um, but Marcy Hamilton, that doesn't really change very much one way or another under this law. No, and what, what this law says is that it's possible for that, store owner to not even permit them to come in and look around. I mean, this is an exclusion principle that these groups are are lobbying for. And uh, the LGBTQ community is really under attack by these laws. So it's one thing to reject, uh, be able as a consumer to reject a hotel, I don't want to stay there, a restaurant or a store. 
it's another thing for the store to be able to put up a sign that says, if you're gay, we don't serve you. And that's what's wrong with this kind of a law. Uh, Marcy Hamilton, we're going to have to leave it there, but thank you so much for joining us. Um, Thank you. Marcy Hamilton is a professor of law uh, at uh, Yeshiva University. We're going to now talk to an official in Indiana who's having to deal with the consequences of this law. So these are strange times for Indiana. A great deal of publicity uh, swirling around the law recently signed uh, by their governor, uh, Governor Pence. And so you, you see these things where, I mean, Charles Barkley is suggesting that the final four be withdrawn from Indianapolis. Not really a very practical suggestion with uh, a week to go. Here in Connecticut, uh, Governor Malloy uh, has just signed an order saying uh, forbidding state-funded business travel to uh, Indiana, although as far as I can tell, we have a nearly identical law on our books since 1993. But that's neither here nor there for Chris Gall, who's the vice president of marketing and communications for Visit Indy. So I think it's fair to say you have a little bit of a problem on your plate right now. The message you want to send is that everybody's welcome and there's a competing message being sent right now that maybe some people aren't welcome so so how are you dealing with this again thanks for having me on yeah visit indy has been around since 1923 and our job is to market and promote indianapolis and enhance the perception of indianapolis and certainly it's been a, a tough week we, we opposed the bill for the very reason of of what we're feeling today and that is an abnormal amount of publicity surrounding uh, the fact that there's a perception that Indianapolis and Indiana, for that matter, is not welcoming, that we don't have hospitality at our core, at our, at our DNA, and certainly we know that to be the case. We, we're coming off a record-setting 2014 in terms of tourism, so this is certainly not, uh, when you're in the business of marketing a city, where you want to be, but the 2,000 media stories, uh, locally, regionally, nationally, even internationally, talking about this topic and not putting Indianapolis necessarily in a, in a positive light has been uh, certainly put us in a crisis mode. Um, you obviously also want to send, spend, uh, send a specific message to the uh, LGBT community. Uh, they are the people who feel uh, most imperiled by this new law, but they're also a very desirable tourism niche right right, right now. These are often people who do like to travel, do like to visit cities, like they like, they often, I mean, I don't want to generalize or stereotype, but, you know, I mean, they're, they're good business for, for any city with a great restaurant district and, and lots of entertainment. So how do you send a different message from what people are saying that law sends? Yeah, absolutely. The, the LGBT market for us in terms of tourism has been one that uh, we, we've seen grow in, in recent years. So for there to be messaging out there that for some reason uh, the perception is we're not welcoming, it's certainly not welcoming to us. So we've spent the last six days working with LGBT media, uh, reassuring uh, their media outlets of how inclusive Indianapolis is, the fact that our city has actually an ordinance on the books, a human rights ordinance that protects all from being discriminated against and, and uh, really educating them on the fact that please don't consider Indianapolis following suit with the state, that we don't feel that there will be any change to the way uh, visitors are, are um, uh, welcomed or greeted when they hit Indianapolis, the state capital. Uh, we, you know, we're the 13th largest city in the nation. We have 26 million visitors from around the globe who come here annually, and, and um, our message has been very simple, that just because a bill is enacted, doesn't mean your hospitality goes away. And really seeing is believing and experiencing is believing. And, and we're looking forward to the men's final four that's coming uh, later this week so that we can uh, unquestionably roll up the red carpet and, and really rally the 75,000 people who depend on tourism for a paycheck to display the Hoosier hospitality we're known for uh, worldwide. I gather some businesses uh, are already organizing and to, to put up stickers in their windows that say open for service. Can you tell me any more about that? 
Yeah, there, there are a bunch of grassroots efforts in place that are helping and aid the perception problem. Open for Business and a sticker campaign is one of those. We've had meetings uh, as recently as this morning on some other grassroots efforts that really help spread the indie love, the fact that we are open for business and, and we are a, a city that welcomes all. So in the, in the coming days, you'll see us go a little bit more public. It's, it's been a, an ever-evolving issue, you know, Thursday into Friday, the weekend, we, we really were anxious to monitor where and how Indianapolis is being mentioned and, and, and what light. Uh, we feel it's, it's incumbent on us as the entity that promotes and markets Indianapolis to, to beef up those efforts and, and uh, really start uh, viciously defending the capital city. You probably don't want to say viciously depend, defending, vehemently, vigorously defending. Well, uh, vigorously defending. and viciously. What I mean by that is we are under fire, and mm. there's a lot of misperceptions. Cities compete against each other, and uh, we know that um, uh, we compete with, with Chicago and New Orleans and Denver and Dallas and, and Miami and and Boston and New York for convention business and event business, like a Final Four. And so we want to make sure that, that uh, the record is straight, that, that hospitality is not going away in Indianapolis. And, and the fact is we are inclusive. Are you guys surprised at how this um, unfolded? I mean, maybe you knew, you know, weeks ago that this might be something of an issue or it might it might come up in some way. But are you surprised at the degree to which it's, uh, it's such a red-hot center on the national radar screen? Unfortunately, we're not. As a non-political organization who's been around since 1923, it's very rare we put our hat in the ring and to oppose something like this. But unfortunately, this does not come as a surprise. We were anticipating this type of backlash, this feeling and misperception that we're not a welcoming city. And so we were uh, we were bracing for this. Now, candidly, at this level, no, not necessarily uh, I would say a scale of 1 to 10. We're, we're certainly at a 10, and we were anticipating a, a 6 to 7. So it's certainly, uh, again, something that uh, we anticipated, but, but not to this level. One way to go down the line, and I realize this falls far outside the ordinary purview of a marketing and communications group, uh, would be you know, to have an anti-discrimination law in the books. I mean, that's one of the things that's sort of coming up here in the news coverage. Is that something you'd welcome? Absolutely. We, we have, uh, as mentioned, in, in 06, we passed the Human Rights Ordinance that protects all, including LGBT. We're working hard to see if there's clarification that can be sought from the state level to see if that bill might be grandfathered in. But we're also just reminding that that's the law that's currently on the books in the city of Indianapolis. The state law is to take effect in July. So it's really uh, how do we uh, reassure those groups here in the short term, like the NCAA Men's Final Four and a few other larger conventions and events that that we are uh, open for business, we are welcoming, we're inclusive, and, and Hoosier Hospitality is, is alive and well. All right. Well, Chris Gall, uh, good luck with that. Uh, Chris Gall is Vice President of Marketing and Communication for Visit Indy. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on the program. Bye-bye. Okay. We reserve the right to refuse service to you. Okay, so in a few days, the city of Indianapolis is going to fill up with large, sweaty men in tank tops and shorts, embracing each other and dancing for joy, and businesses are worried about having to sell them cakes and flowers. Clearly, I don't understand this controversy. Today's show was produced by Tucker Ives and me, Kyone Wolf. Our interns are Julia Pestel and Sydney Laura. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Greta Van Sustren. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff being refused service at Little Caesars, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, Mark Oppenheimer guest hosts a show about morning zoo radio. And now...
back to Colin. Yes, the entire goal of these 48 hours in which we are is to somehow or other get out of the shadow of Mark Oppenheimer, and we're not doing a very good job so far. Um, he's a guest on the first segment. He's hosting tomorrow. Uh, and uh, for this segment, uh, not only has he written about the same topic for uh, time.com, but he claims to know very well our guest here, uh, Phoebe maltz uh, who wrote it. This may even be just another identity which Mark uses, for all I know. Um, Phoebe maltz Bovi, who uh, writes for numerous publications, including the New Republic, where she recently wrote about um, Lena Dunham's somewhat controversial humor piece uh, in The New Yorker. And so this is a, a piece that, that asks the question, do the following statements refer to my to A, my dog, or B, my Jewish boyfriend? Um, uh, some of them are relatively harmless, but there are some... Uh, he doesn't. He never carries a wallet. He doesn't tip. Uh, there are some like that. There are some that say, "I feel he is judgmental. I mean, judgmental about the food I serve him. When I make something from scratch, he doesn't want to eat it. But he also rejects most store-bought dinners. This is because he comes from a culture in which mothers focus every ounce of their attention on their offspring and don't acknowledge their own need for independence as women. They are sucked dry by their children, who ultimately leave them as soon as they find suitable mates. So, um, Phoebe, obviously, there's been a, some hue and cry about this." Uh, the usual cycle of outrage, I think was your phrase, uh, on Twitter, the usual responses, uh, and particularly a response from, from David Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, saying, no, no, we don't regard, regard this as, as anti-Semitic uh, or trading on harmful stereotypes, and here's why. So explain where you came down on all this. Uh, well, thanks for having me on. Um, so the first thing I think to know about this controversy is that it only really became a controversy because it wasn't immediately obvious from this quiz that Lena Dunham is herself Jewish. I think that perhaps the New Yorker assumed everyone just knows everything about her because she's so famous, but it read like a piece by somebody not Jewish because it was about um, the because the expression "my Jewish boyfriend" is just not something somebody Jewish <laughs> would probably say. So I think that's sort of where um, the controversy came from. But the argument that you make, that I think it's an interesting one, and one that I don't 100% agree with, but I'm really, I find it very intriguing, is the other thing that she's doing, and your doppelganger, Mark Oppenheimer, made kind of a similar argument in Time.com, is that she's trading on a bunch of stereotypes that don't really exist or resonate very well, certainly not for anybody, you know, younger than 40 years old, right? Right. I think that that's true. And I I saw Mark's piece after um, writing about this. And yes, I agree as well. Um, yeah, I think these are, I mean, I can watch, you know, an old Seinfeld or something even older and still get the humor from this because this is my culture. Um, but I think that at this point, it's sort of, it's starting to seem a little bit stale. Yeah. Um, although it's sort of interesting to, to evoke Seinfeld because it's sort of back to your original point, which is that Lena Dunham has a little bit more of a defense for this piece if you understand that she's Jewish. Uh, it's like the dentist in Seinfeld who converted for the jokes, right? Exactly. But, um, exactly. Uh, except that she didn't have to convert. She actually, her mother actually is a right. Jewish and her, and her father is not. Right. Although I, the other thing I find myself wondering about, I mean, reading your piece, and you're sort of saying, well, this kind of kind of overtly, these this humor based on these hyper-specific Jewish tropes um, maybe a dying form might even be a dead form. And so I found myself thinking, well, what about Larry David? Okay, well, he's old, so uh, you win that point. But then I think about programs like Transparent, which is as much an exploration of Jewish identity among millennials as it is about sexual identity um, or 
Well, old Jews telling jokes, I guess, once again, we're back to that. It's like an old idea. Uh, Or old, it's old Jews telling something. Uh, Bad Jews by Joshua Harmon, which just broke a box office record at the Long Wharf Theater, which also is about millennials. And I guess one of the things that I'm wondering is, is there another way in which you could sort of say, well, you could maybe, you can have a play called Old Jews Telling Jokes or a play called Bad Jews today because some of the tension has really kind of gone out of these stereotypes. It's almost like a Buffalo Bills Wild West show about the frontier after the frontier is closed, that that people have calmed down enough about this so that maybe you can have a piece in The New Yorker uh, about the, whether or not this is about your dog or your Jewish boyfriend. Well, I think that it's a bit... Um I think it's sort of complicated. I agree that there is sort of millennial Jewish humor, and I think, I mean, Broad City would be the example that comes to mind for me. And I think it subverts a bunch of the stereotypes, certainly, um, to have a Jewish mother who is herself. um, I think that the Jewish mother stereotype there is really um, subverted in a bunch of ways. But I think what's happened is both Jews are more assimilated in certain respects so that this sort of Jew as other humor doesn't really quite work in the way maybe it it, it doesn't really resonate in the way it did um, in the past. So I think in terms of um, like how would you watch a show about a Jew as sort of the different person? If you yourself are a non-white minority, it might seem sort of odd to have mm-hmm. Jews as the stand-in, but I think um, there is such an awareness these days about rising anti-Semitism in Europe, and I think that that's part of why um, humor that's that feels anti-Jewish wouldn't really um, get the same sort of lighthearted reception as it might have even like a couple years ago. Right. Actually, I, I got that from one of my college friends who I sent the piece to, and he wrote back. I, I said, do you, do you find, he's Jewish, obviously, and I said, do you find this anti-Semitic? He goes, no, I don't think it's that funny, but I'm much more worried about the people who are trying to kill me than, than I am about whether people think I carry a wallet with me. Um, oh, I see. So that's yet another way of processing all this. Right, right. Um, well, we, we are unfortunately out of time. Uh, this would be an interesting, longer conversation, and maybe we'll, we'll have it someday. But, Phoebe, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me on. I read Phoebe Maltz-Bovey uh, in The New Republic, and uh, specifically this piece. about, And then read Lena Donovan's piece, and you can email me to tell me whether you think it's funny, offensive, or both. Colin, C-O-L-I-N, at WNPR.org. Lena Dunham. very insightful about life in your generation Lena Dunham you're very nice lady Lena Dunham what is your favorite movie by Woody Allen this whole Scientology thing is it's nuts I mean I, I know they have a lot of celebrities that are backing them up and they're very powerful but If I say something against Scientology, what are they going to do? I mean, cut me off?